0: To nefarious new york i'm allison and as always i'm here with meredith hello <laughs> how are you tonight there i'm doing lovely thank you and you oh good just back from a crazy weekend okay uh
1: let's start out uh we just want to thank a couple of people for their their support some of our podcast listeners mm-hmm. uh first shout out goes to my nephew brady hi brady Dee, Dee loves you and thank you for listening. I think he's our number one fan, by the way. He might be, yeah. He is. And uh, he also uh, has been researching cases. Ooh. Which is really, really great because he's, he's 11. <laughs> so uh, very, very into the podcasts. We want to say hello and thank you to Margaret and Bill. Okay. All right. So I think we're going to get going here. Um, today's case takes us to Jericho, New York which is located on the north shore of Long Island. It is about 30 miles east of New York City, I would say. So a little random fact about Jericho, a prominent family in the Equal Rights Movement after the Revolutionary War resided there, and their house was part of the Underground Railroad. Bet you didn't know that. I did not. Okay, the house had a secret panel that led to a staircase up to the attic where people were hidden until it was uh, safe to move them. So just a little...
0: That's really cool.
1: Yeah, it is cool. A little random fact.
0: Let's get on to the facts of the case, though. Okay. Okay. So on September 2nd, 1999, a man had just had an inspection done on a house he was buying. You know, when you make sure there aren't termites or the place isn't going to fall down. Uh, If you own a home, you've had an inspection done. But I'm willing to bet all of our massive five-star reviews that they never found anything close to what this guy's going to find. During the inspection, under the house, in a 36-inch crawl space, a rusted 55-gallon drum weighing about 350 pounds was discovered. So when I say like a drum, I mean like one of those steel barrels.
1: Yeah, I, I think of Breaking Bad when I think of like a steel barrel,
0: mm-hmm. like one of those giant ones. Yeah. 350
1: gal- Okay, pounds, I should say.
0: After a bit of back and forth, the buyer insisted the seller remove it. The seller tried to arrange for the garbage collectors to remove it, but they weren't going anywhere near it. The barrel was clearly marked toxic, and the garbage collectors wanted no part of that. With no option left, the seller and his real estate agent, who helped because he obviously wanted to sell the house, pried the lid off.
1: And what happened?
0: They were hit with the stench of chemicals mixed with decay. Inside the barrel, they saw a mummified hand and a shoe poking out of a pile of little plastic pellets and some dark liquid. Once they recovered, they called the police. When the contents of the barrel were removed, the police found the body of a woman, her full-term fetus, her clothing, and other items all well-preserved. All of this stuff was in an airtight barrel, so without the presence of bugs and air to aid in the decay process, the body was mummified.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: So also inside, but not as well preserved were the pages of an address book.
1: Okay, now for our for our younger listeners, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you're talking about a physical address book.
0: Yes, a physical address book.
1: Because there were no phones back then. I should say there there were no mobile phones back then. We
0: had to use smoke signals. So the woman's body, shrunken over time, was four feet nine inches tall and weighed 59 pounds. Now I know the weight seems incredibly low, but I'm guessing that the mummification process kind of leaches all the liquid out of the body. Okay. So and that's most of our weight, right?
1: I'm I'm trusting you on this because I am I don't know anything about the mummification process. No. Um, and I guess the, the body the body shrinks. Yeah. when
0: She was wearing a skirt, button-down sweater, high socks, and a shoe with a mid-level heel in a style that started to narrow down the time frame to the 1960s. Around her neck was a religious necklace and a locket with the words Patrice Love Uncle Phil. She also had a wedding band on her left hand that bore the inscription M.H.R. There was another ring with a green stone and... An, a coat and a pocketbook with makeup. The autopsy found that the woman was 25 to 30 years old at the time of her death, and had unique dental work that is usually seen in South America.
1: Okay.
0: She had been killed by blunt force trauma to her head and had been dead 25 to 30 years. The fetus was a boy and was 17 inches long, so pretty That's
1: pretty much full term. Yeah. I mean...
0: Even though there were a ton of clues, the police couldn't identify her. They couldn't find a match in the missing persons report. They couldn't get fingerprints, but they had DNA, and not just the woman's DNA, but that of the fetus that could help identify his father. Because now at this time, once again, like we see in many of the cases, I guess
1: DNA comes into play. Mm -hmm. And when she was killed, obviously that wasn't a factor back back then. So it's not like somebody had to worry about, oh my God, whoever killed her, they could... You know, discover it was me through DNA because it didn't exist. It didn't exist. Okay.
0: What is really amazing is that through some crazy forensic science stuff, they uncovered the names, addresses, and phone numbers from the rotted address book paper.
1: Wow. So they were able
0: to dry that out and kind of with some like infrared lighting were able to get information out of it. At first, though, there weren't any leads since this is about 30 years later and a lot of the people had moved away or changed phone numbers. And also, this is 1999, so we don't have—we had the internet, but not, like, the crazy social media, so it wasn't as easy to track people down. Right, right. So they're not getting much information from the address book yet. Okay. Uh, Around the time that they're making some headway with the address book, the police traced the barrel to a chemical company in Linden, New Jersey. The barrel was manufactured in 1965. Okay. It originally held green paint that was discontinued after 1973. The paint and the plastic pellets were used to make artificial plants. The house had one owner from 1957 to 1972 and two owners between 1972
1: and 1984. Okay, I'm trying to do this
0: in my head now. I know, so (laughs) I'll walk us through it. So we're kind of narrowing down the time frame that the barrel could have been left there. It had to be after 1965 because that's when the barrel was manufactured. Okay. And most likely before 1973 when the paint was discontinued. So we have like a little time frame in there. A little window. Okay. Mm-hmm. This kind of left the first owner that lived there from 1957 to 1972 and less likely, but also the owner that bought in 1972. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, neighbors in Jericho remembered the first owner that lived there from 1957 to 1972, Howard Elkins. He was part owner of the Melrose Plastic Company, a New York City maker of decorative artificial plants. Coincidentally, plants that used green paint and plastic pellets found in the barrel. Hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. The neighbors did not remember much about him, but after some news coverage on the case, an anonymous caller told the police that in the 1960s, Howard had been having an affair with a Hispanic woman who worked in his factory.
1: Now, I I know they're saying anonymous, but we don't have any idea who called in that tip.
0: No. After selling the house, Howard had moved to Boca Raton, Florida, and was living comfortably, enjoying his three grown children and his grandchildren. His world was rocked when he found New York detectives at his door in his upscale retirement community. At some point, the New York Times got wind of the story and a reporter reached out to him and did a telephone interview.
1: Okay, so what does he say now?
0: (laughs) So Howard acknowledged that he had bought the house new in 1957 and had lived in it for 15 years before selling and moving to Florida in 1972. He also said that he had built a den that created the crawl space in 1966.
1: Okay, so 66.
0: I don't know, this guy sounded guilty to me already. He couldn't remember the name of the contractor who had built the addition, but said the job had gone smoothly. Asked if he had ever gone into the crawl space, he replied, what for? He couldn't think of anyone that had access to the property while he was living there except gardeners, landscapers, and housekeepers.
1: Okay, so the crawl space was underneath. Under the house. Under the house. Yes. Now, growing up in my house, we had a crawl space also, but it was in the attic. And from time to time you had to go into the crawl space. So maybe if there was a a leak in the roof or, you know, something was going on with the house, I find it a little weird that he's saying, you know, what for? What, you never went into the crawl space? Right.
0: Well, he's trying to distance himself from the barrel. We think. We think. That's what I would be doing.
1: I say, bull boop. Mm -hmm.
0: When the police spoke to him, they methodically showed him each piece of evidence, including the barrel. Howard said he had never seen it. The detectives laid out the facts showing how things were pointing to Howard. He finally admitted to having an affair, but said he couldn't remember what the woman looked like or her name. Oh, come on. I know. <laughs> okay. How do you not remember the woman you had an affair with?
1: All right. You may not remember. Again, this is going back however many years ago. 30. If you had an affair. Now, I'm not talking about like a one night. I'm talking about a, an ongoing affair
0: mm-hmm. where you have a potential pregnancy.
1: I think you would re- at least remember her first name,
0: her first name or what she looked like. Uh, OK, I mean, he's saying he had one affair in his life. I'm it's, thinking you hang out right, to that and you remember it.
1: It's not looking good for Howard, but please it's not proceed. Looking good
0: for Howard, but let's see. They also presented him with the information that in that address book, the forensic science team found his name and phone number. Oh, come on. Bagged. Mm-hmm. Not a coincidence. <laughs> to really put the spotlight on himself, he refused to give a DNA sample to determine whether he was the father of the fetus.
1: Okay. Howard's a dead duck.
0: Howard's in big trouble. <laughs> Howard the Duck. Wasn't that a movie? Yes. <laughs> In the middle of the interview, Howard's phone started ringing. He answered and said the call was from his wife. Under the guise of wanting privacy to speak to his wife, he told the police to leave. Before leaving, the police told Howard they would be getting an order for a DNA sample and that the truth was going to come out. After his call with his wife, Howard left his house and went to Walmart. While there, he purchased a shotgun and ammunition. He never returned home. The next day, Howard's family told the police that he left his home around 1:30 p.m. the day before and did not return. Relatives reported him missing. His son went looking for him and went to a friend's house that they were house sitting. And upon opening the garage, he found his father in the back seat of a Ford Explorer, with a shotgun between his legs and a fatal shot to his head.
1: No way. Mm-hmm. So he killed himself. Mm, I would say, uh, guilty. Mm.
0: Well, Well, by this time... Innocent
1: until proven guilty, blah, blah, blah.
0: Right. By this time, the lab retrieved an immigrant ID number and another phone number from the address book. This time, someone answered when the police dialed her 30-year-old phone number. Kathy Andrade never forgot about her friend she met in English class more than 30 years earlier. She knew immediately that the body was Rena. Marroquin, who disappeared in 1969 at the age of 27. Mara, could you just tell us a little bit about Reina?
1: Sure. So Reina Marroquin came to the U.S. from El Salvador in 1966. Wow, she wasn't here very long. No. Okay. She came for a fresh start after she discovered that her husband got his mistress pregnant. Uh, I have zero judgment here, but this seems a little strange to me that in one instance... She would be the scorned wife. And then a few years later, she's a mistress. Right. But whatever. So she first uh, lived in Largemont, New York, which is uh, not far from where we live. And she worked as a nanny for the family that sponsored her. And after about two months, she quit without any explanation. And on June 6, 1967, she checked into a Catholic residence for working women trying to get a fresh start. She got a job at the Melrose factory that Howard Part owned. A little less than a year and a half later, Raina told a few friends that she was pregnant and that the father told her he was going to marry her. Geez, I've heard that before. Anyway, the problem with her boyfriend was that he already had a wife and three children, and Raina was worried he would never keep his promise. Because of her pregnancy, Raina moved out of the Catholic women's home, and Howard got her an apartment in New Jersey.
0: According to Kathy Andrade, as her due date approached, Reina began to realize that Howard was not going to leave his wife. No kidding. Shocker. She, I think understandably, called Howard's house and told his wife oh. she was pregnant. Okay. Howard became enraged and threatened to kill her. Raina knew she had made a serious mistake, and she told Kathy that Howard said, I'm going to kill you. I will never forgive you. Raina was extremely scared, so Kathy went to her apartment to check on her, but she wasn't there. Kathy waited three hours, and when Raina didn't show up, she went to the police. Unfortunately, Kathy had nothing more than a name and no real information, so there was nothing the police could do, and Raina was just never heard from again.
1: All right, that's really weird. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, like, what do you. I do have a little problem with that because it. You just give up and that's it? Where did she think that Reina went?
0: I don't know. I don't know if Howard had cleared all her stuff out of the apartment and it looked like she had just moved.
1: I know, but like, okay, so we're friends. <laughs> if I just disappeared, would you just give up and think well, like... Well, maybe
0: she didn't give up. Maybe she pursued it a bit more, but there was nothing to do. I mean, what's she going to do in the 1960s?
1: I don't. I don't know. I just have a like...
0: I don't I mean, it sounds very like flippant me saying it like and she just never heard from her again. Right. Well, maybe there was more to her search for her.
1: And what I also am a little unclear at is so in the beginning you had said that there was, you know, they went through missing a missing persons file. Mm -hmm. So do we know if she was ever reported as a missing person?
0: Well, the only report was Kathy going to the police, but they wouldn't file an official report because they had nothing to really base it on. All right. I guess. That's okay. the way they rolled in 1960. Okay, so... So the police theorized that Howard lured Rena to the factory and beat her in her head in a fit of anger. Okay. Once she was dead, he took the body to Long Island and placed it in a steel barrel. So that drum. Right so to me this is just evidence of how stupid criminals are but he planned on taking her body in the barrel and putting it on his boat and dumping it into the ocean which is a great plan right except when he had it at his house he weighted it down with plastic pellets from his factory so at 350 pounds it was too heavy to load onto his boat so he just had to push it into the crawl space under his house and, you know, fingers crossed, leave it there. So it did remain for 30 years untouched. So he probably thought he was in the clear. But now the mystery is solved. The murderer's dead. And the last loose end was finding Raina's family.
1: Here's the other weird thing these are the things that go through my mind, right? As, as I'm learning about this case you lived in the house, mm-hmm. you put the barrel in the house. So he sold his house and nobody looked in, t- in the crawl space. Like, wouldn't you say, oh my God, if I sell my house, somebody might look in the crawl space? Right. Either that or there was a really crappy inspector that did the inspection on the house. I guess. When the I people- mean, yeah.
0: I'm amazed that he was able to live there with her under his house for so long, but then also just go on. With his life, like nothing happened. Like I feel like at some point, it should eat away at you.
1: Well, yeah, but also because there's no other crimes that he committed. Right. Like this guy just did this horrible, awful thing, and just went on with his life like nothing ever happened.
0: Right. Like he did it to cover up a mistake he made, the affair. Right. But I feel like if he wasn't, his conscience eventually it would, would get eat to, away. Right. It would get to you. Right, And it just didn't, so that makes me nervous that he...
1: No, and then what does he do? He shoots himself in the head like a coward. Right?
0: So this is, you know, winding down now. So, Mara, uh, could you just tell us... kind of Well, like just conclusion. tell us how they found the family.
1: Okay, so obviously, Reina had a family. Um, and so, according to the research that you did, a reporter flew to El Salvador and tracked down Reina's mother in the town of San Martin. She was 95 years old now and was known as Grandma Marroquin. The reporter then tells her that her daughter um, has been found, and she now well, nearly collapses. She'd been heartbroken ever since Raina stopped writing home with no explanation in 1969. I mean, God, you, that's your, your daughter, and you never hear from her? Right, and, and
0: you probably don't have the means to come searching for her. Uh, right,
1: right. So here's, the, here's so what's crazy about it, and, and this is nuts, but we see it a lot. She'd had dreams over the years of Reina in a barrel, mm-hmm. apparently. Um, and she said, now now I know she's with me. She came flying like a dove back to her home. Reina was eventually buried in El Salvador. And one month later, Grandma, Grandma Mariquin, her mom, passed away and was buried with her. Oh, that's sad.
0: I know. But at least she got to bring her home before she passed away. Yeah. I mean, she's 95 years old.
1: I know, but absolutely. But that's a, it's a sad, I mean, it, it, it there's closure there mm-hmm. and there's something sweet about it, but at the same time, it's it's very sad.
0: There were a few loose ends to this case. Okay. After Howard died, they took his DNA and they compared it to that of the fetus and, he was found to be the father of the fetus um, to, I don't know how to say this, with a 99.93% certainty. So on. he's the father of the fetus. Well, well, that just, you know.
1: You are the father.
0: Ties it all up. Is that Jerry Springer?
1: Um, Maury Povich,
0: one of I them, think. One of them quality shows. One of them, yeah.
1: I and mean, is that supposed to shock us? <laughs> we pretty much knew that, no, right? Know. Yeah. It was just one little loose
0: end. Yeah. And then one final note was uncovered from the papers of the address book in the barrel. Raina wrote, don't be mad. I told the truth. Hmm. Hmm.
1: I wonder who she's talking to. I don't
0: know. Maybe she used it as a little bit of a journal too. Right.
1: But I'm saying, don't be mad. Maybe her, her family.
0: Or maybe Howard called his wife and told the truth. Right. I don't know. So that was the case of Reina Moroquin, but it's also the woman in the barrel, the body in the barrel. But her name was Reina Moroquin. So,
1: okay. Hmm. that What's was that? that was interesting. And and you know what? That's God, that's something that drags on. I bet you he thought he was off the hook.
0: He did, but I mean, he was okay. very lucky for Ex- a long time. Of course. He got 30 years that he was not entitled to.
1: No, absolutely not.
0: I just love that he was like living in Florida in this upscale retirement community. Like, like, it's so weird. I can't wrap my head around that. He's
1: probably, you know, going out for a jog in the morning and and, hey, hey, Howard, how you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Howard's a friggin murderer.
0: So if you like the material we're putting out and the content we're putting out, Please go on and give us five star reviews on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. And if you really like it and really want to help us out, if you go to our website, which is nefariousny.com, there's a PayPal donate button and any donation would be really appreciated. And we actually got our first donation. We did? From Kim from Ikea. We did! Kim from Ikea. So I gave her a little shout out on Instagram thanking her. Thank you, Kim. But that helps us be able to pay for this podcast because it's not actually free to do. Correct. And that's it. We appreciate every single listener. I check all the time. And the five-star reviews and the written reviews um, are... Very much appreciated. So, Meredith, do you want to sing us out?
1: That's all we got for, for tonight. And uh, thanks for joining us. Nefarious New York. Stay tuned for some <laughs> outtakes of mm-hmm. Meredith and Elson after the music. <laughs> They know whose address book it is?
0: Well, it's the dead woman's.
1: Right. Obviously. But but does it say
0: this book belongs to? No. It's not that easy. And the podcast is over. (laughs) (laughs) And the mystery solved. All right. Keep going. You can just cut that out. No. No, I'm not. (laughs)